How do you get justice from the justice system that murdered you? More importantly, how do you avoid being murdered by that same justice system that's supposed to protect you from all of that in the first place? Hi, and welcome to How to Get Insulin in Jail. My name's Aaron Feely, and I would advise you to buckle up for this wild ride we're about to take together. Now, call me a bleeding heart, but I think that if the government is holding you captive, then the government should likewise be accountable for uh, not murdering you while you're in captivity. Because how can we have a government of the people, for the people, by the people, if we don't even have that? You know, not to mention the whole 14th Amendment clause of the U.S. Constitution that says, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And the Eighth Amendment, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. Researching this topic led me down a rabbit hole of corruption, torture, and wrongful deaths, aka uh, murders, all at the hands of the very justice system that was established to, you know, protect us from all of that in the first place. See, part of me is not surprised at everything that I've found, but another part of me is just completely astounded. Now, if you don't have firsthand experience with type 1 diabetes, let me just drop in a quick diabetes crash course. I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes about diabetes. Just so that you can fully appreciate this wild ride we're about to take together. So let's preface it with how the metabolism normally works. So our body's main energy source is blood sugar or blood glucose. It's like the body's gasoline. Your pancreas and your liver work together to make sure that no matter what you eat or how much you exercise, your blood sugar will stay in a healthy range. The pancreas and the liver are like homeostasis homies. So we get sugar from carbohydrates. So like bread, pasta, potatoes, fruit, cereal, rice, Basically any food that's not meat or cheese, or I guess like kale, uh, make your blood sugar rise. So when this happens, your pancreas will release a hormone called insulin that signals to your organs and tissues that, hey guys, blood sugar, energy, hooray! Your cells and tissues get the energy they need, everyone's happy. If your blood sugar is higher than the energy that you burn through, the excess blood sugar gets stored as fat. So this is the mechanism behind gaining weight. So your weight will fluctuate in order to keep your blood sugar in its proper range, which for a non-diabetic is usually between 70 and 120 milligrams per deciliter. Every time I've tested a non-diabetic's blood sugar, it's usually about 85. So anything above 180 is considered damaging to your organs. Now, even if you don't eat anything, your body will still maintain its own blood sugar by reversing this process. So if you burn through more energy than you consume, your liver will then burn that stored fat, convert it back into glucose, and dump it back into the bloodstream for energy, which is the mechanism behind losing weight. Now from there, the same pancreas insulin process commences, and so even with inadequate food intake, organs and tissues still get the energy they need, everyone's still happy, hooray! So a great example of this in action is the keto diet. Cut out carbs, run on fat, right? Well, you're still running on sugar, you're just not consuming any sugar, so your body is burning through its fat stores and using that for sugar instead. This is called being in a state of ketosis. So burning fat for energy leaves chemical byproducts in the blood called ketones. Ketones, ketosis, keto diet, get it? Cool. 
So these ketones are actually acetone bodies, which, yes, acetone as in the stuff that nail polish remover is made of. Now this might seem outlandish, but it happens to everyone whenever you burn through more calories than you eat or go a while without eating. So okay, where does diabetes play into all of this? So at its core, diabetes is a hormone problem. It's a problem with the hormone insulin. So most people know about type 2 diabetes, the most common type. Type 2 is often associated with obesity and a lack of exercise. But generally, the more body fat a person has, the more insulin it took to store that fat in the first place. So over time, the person builds resistance to their own insulin. It takes their body more insulin to control blood glucose levels effectively. So initially, a type 2 might produce too much insulin to compensate, which only increases their body's tolerance to it and exacerbates the issue. Over time, their pancreas essentially gets tired and gradually loses the ability to keep up adequate insulin production. So they're still producing insulin, just not enough of it. In a nutshell, our hunter-gatherer metabolisms were not designed for modern agriculture or sedentary lifestyles. So type 2s can help their pancreas along by burning through blood sugar with less insulin by losing weight and exercising more or optimizing their diet to include less simple carbohydrates and processed sugars. Basically, anything they can do to uh, maximize their own insulin's effectiveness will help. Over time, though, they might need diabetes medications and or insulin. But for the purpose of this podcast, we'll be focusing on the other main type of diabetes, type 1 diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease where the person's immune system attacks and destroys the cells of the pancreas that produce insulin. Now, once this happens, those cells are deady McDead and no amount of exercise or kale is going to bring them back to life. So this is a completely different disease from type 2. So no human can survive without insulin. So a type 1 diagnosis means that person is now dependent on synthetic insulin every day to stay alive. A usual insulin regimen includes a long-acting insulin injection or a daily slow-release like background insulin that keeps blood sugar in the normal homeostatic range throughout the day and night, and also doses of a rapid-acting insulin to uh, combat blood sugar spikes whenever the person eats. Alternatively, they could wear an insulin pump that just continuously releases microdoses of that rapid-acting insulin and then larger doses to combat food spikes, which kind of mimics what the pancreas would naturally do. To make this even more fun, synthetic insulin is incredibly easy to overdose on. Imagine that, having to take life support 24-7 while uh, constantly trying to not overdose on it. Even a marginal miscalculation in dosing insulin can have potentially dire consequences. If the person takes too much insulin, their blood sugar could start to fall too low. The person will start to feel weak, woozy, and shaky, like they're going to faint. They may become ravenously hungry or have trouble talking as their brain and body are starved of needed blood sugar. A source of simple sugar will easily fix it. Candy, juice, or a non-diet soda will easily do the trick. But if someone's blood sugar crashes too low or bottoms out too quickly, that person can pass out, have a seizure, or drop dead. You know, no big deal. So to help prevent this from happening, an insulin-dependent person will use what's called an insulin-to-carb ratio and a correction factor. So, for example, my correction factor is one unit of insulin for every 50 points over 100 my blood sugar is, and I take one unit of insulin for every 7 grams of carbs that I eat. So, say my blood sugar is 250, and I'm about to eat a sandwich using bread that has 22 carbs per slice. So I would figure that 22 times 2 slices of bread is 44 carbs, divided by 7 is a little over 6 units. 
plus the three units for the correction factor, since 250 minus 100 is 150 divided by 50 is three. So ultimately I would need about nine units of insulin to be able to eat that sandwich and not run into trouble. Are we having fun yet? Turns out this is what your pancreas does, guys. But then say if someone rings the doorbell in the middle of my sandwich or, or maybe my kids get into something, and uh, I get up to go see what's going on and only eat half of the sandwich before getting distracted and walking away, I then run the risk of bottoming out because I only ate half of the food that I dosed for. And food is not the only thing that spikes your blood sugar either. For instance, adrenaline rushes. When you have an adrenaline rush, it triggers the liver to dump a giant loady load of sugar into your blood just to give you that energy boost for fight or flight. But a lot of things can affect your blood sugar, like stress, illness, exercise, how much sleep you got or didn't get, how hydrated or dehydrated you are, hormones, menstrual cycles, the weather, and about a million other things. So what happens when there's no insulin? <gasps> Great question, dear listener. What happens when you take insulin out of this equation? Um, you self-destruct. <laughs> So when there's no insulin, that ketosis mechanism kicks back in because without insulin, the cells and organs are not getting any glucose. So the liver thinks, well, that must mean there's not enough blood sugar. There's just like a, a fundamental disconnect in the metabolism. The signal's just not getting through. So until the liver gets a signal from insulin to stop, it just continues burning fat, converting it back into sugar and dumping it back into the bloodstream which makes the person's blood sugar go up. But oh, uh-oh, the cells still aren't getting any glucose. They still need sugar, so it keeps burning more fat, dumping more sugar, blood sugar skyrockets out of control. But oh, cells still starved for sugar. I don't know what's going on, so I'ma just burn fat till Captain Insulin tells me not to. The body basically eats itself alive and just dumps virtually unchecked amounts of sugar into the bloodstream, just like a hamster running on its wheel. So the blood sugar just skyrockets to like inhuman amounts. And this is literal sugar, right? So as the sugar content of the blood is building, blood is just getting thicker and syrupy, which is, you know, not great for your heart trying to pump it through and uh, all your other organs that need blood. <laughs> but wait, it doesn't stop there. Also, the liver is spilling all those ketones in this process too, all those acetone bodies. So they also start building up to poisonous levels. So the skyrocketing sugar and acetone levels change the pH of the blood. You guys, the person's blood turns to acid. Okay, which is about as pleasant as it sounds. As soon as the liver starts burning fat and spewing ketones, it's just a ticking time bomb that only insulin can defuse. It's called diabetic ketoacidosis, or DKA for short. Excessive urination is usually one of the first signs. This is the kidneys attempting to flush the excess sugar out of the blood. The person's essentially just pissing out all of their calories, which obviously takes fluids with it, which leads to unquenchable thirst, severe dehydration, and electrolyte imbalances. Then there's the excessive hunger, because the person is literally starving since their body can't use any of the glucose that is building up in them. Then there's extreme weakness and fatigue for the same reasons. Can't forget the nausea, severe stomach pain, and vomiting. Sometimes vomiting, quote, a substance that looks like coffee grounds, which, uh, you know, acid blood. 
hyperventilation. The body is literally trying to ventilate out to the acid. And finally, coma and or cardiac arrest and inevitable death. DKA is a brutal way to die. Basically, without insulin, the person starves to death while their organs drown in acid blood until their brain dies or their heart gives out. It can happen within days or sometimes even hours of going without insulin. So what do you do when you're dependent on this medication to uh, stay alive and not die an excruciating, preventable death? And you're locked in a cell and the jail is just straight up not giving it to you. I know you're probably thinking, well, that would be an egregious violation of that human being's constitutional rights. And you would be right, dear listener. Or at least in theory. But, you know, tell that to Cindy Michelle Arnold, the 38-year-old Mississippi woman who was found dead on the floor of her Jackson County jail cell in September 2018. Now, Cindy had gotten into a dispute with her ex-common-law husband, who she had a restraining order against. And so she was arrested for uh, violating her own protection order. She died after begging for two days for insulin from authorities and medical personnel who, quote, largely ignored her. A jury trial determined there was no criminal wrongdoing. But for a shining example of just how horribly wrong all of this can go, I would like to tell you about Timothy Kuzma. Timothy Kuzma was a 31-year-old type 1 diabetic living in Florida. He was arrested in Collier County on March 28, 2019 for driving with a suspended license. He was out on probation for a prior drug possession charge, so he was denied bail and held in the Naples Jail Center for two weeks. Now, when he was booked into the jail, his blood sugar was in the normal range and he was in fine health, no acute medical issues. But the jail did not give him any long-acting insulin, so that quickly changed. His blood sugar began to skyrocket. And he told them over and over again that his blood sugar was too high and that he needed medical attention. So Armor Healthcare was the medical provider for the Naples Jail Center. And they documented in their own records, okay, they documented that throughout his incarceration, Tim was telling them that he was nauseous, dizzy, vomiting, in pain, extremely thirsty, coughing up blood, gasping for air, passing out, couldn't breathe, that his heart hurt, and that he was going to die. They also documented his skyrocketing blood sugars, which capped out at 599. Remember, the normal range is between 70 and 120. And his blood sugar honestly could have been even higher than that. I know my meter doesn't read above 600. Now, I just want to point out, we discussed uh, how you'll likely die within days of not taking insulin. They were giving Tim some insulin. They were giving him doses of the rapid-acting insulin, but not the background insulin that would have suppressed his ketone production. So they were essentially just dragging out this poor guy's torture. They were basically like, yeah, well, you'll have to make do with uh, half of your life support. You'll be fine for two weeks. Can you imagine just being like, hey, man, no, seriously, like, I'm really, I'm really going to die. Like, I'm running out of time here. Can you please just give me my medicine? Like, I'm in excruciating pain. I can't breathe. And I'm so thirsty. And my heart hurts. And I'm going to die. And that medicine you're holding would just take all of that away. 
I'm throwing up, I'm shitting myself, I'm sweating, I'm coughing up blood. Come on, man, like human to human. Like, can you please not just leave me here to die this excruciating and undignified death? Like, can you please just save my life and give me that insulin in your hand there? And they're just like, nope. What gets me is that this was all documented. There is a paper trail of his high blood sugar levels, his symptoms of DKA, and the fact that he was begging the medical staff for more insulin or to take him to the hospital. So, like, who is documenting all of this? Like, what medical professional is just strolling by with their clipboard, like, all right, what do we got here? Let's see. Hmm. Diabetic and mate. Okay. Insulin dependent. All right. Keeps begging for insulin or to go to the hospital. That's a big nope from me, dog. Patient has been vomiting, defecating, and sweating profusely, often all at the same time. Huh. Keeps complaining of chest pains, shortness of breath, and coughing up blood. Oh. Keep saying that he's going to die. So dramatic. Am I supposed to feel bad for this guy? Alright, let's see. Uh, blood sugar. Mm, critically high. Okay. Blood pressure. Mm, oh, that's critically high too. I swear to God, these people will try anything to get drugs. Oh, it, uh, he appears to be unconscious at this point, but, you know, other than all of that, Seems fine. Did not administer more insulin at this time. Saw no medical necessity for that. Just another beautiful day for this guy. Right now, there's a slow-acting poison in your veins. The antidote is inside the safe. Until finally, April 11th, 2019. Timothy Kuzma's two-week sentence for driving with a suspended license is finally up. By this point, he's half-conscious, clinging to life, and so weak that he needs a wheelchair. Instead of bringing him to the hospital, though, they brought him to court so that he could plead no contest to the drug possession charge he was originally on probation for. So close, Timmy, so close. Just gotta get through court and then you're home free, man. I Can you imagine just the sands of time you have left on this earth just spilling through your fingertips each breath becoming harder and harder as you feel your heart choking out like a car slowly running out of gas just drowning internally in acid blood you can see the light but you're trying to ignore it just trying to hang on just longer a little bit longer like you desperately need an ambulance like sirens on situation why won't these people just bring you to the hospital damn it or you know just give you an insulin shot. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, but instead, you're in shackles, in a wheelchair, in a courtroom, listening to this. Well, Mr. Russo, obviously the court has observed Mr. Kuzma. There's obviously a physical condition that he's dealing with, which is affecting him. Uh, he does appear to be in some distress, but he appears to be responding appropriately, although at times a little bit more slowly. Uh, it does appear that he's competent to enter the plea and has understood everything. Would you agree with that? I would agree, and when I think of the professor in jail, I also observe physical distress, but not having uh, individuals understand what I was talking about. 
Right. The, the court does have responsibility to make sure that any plea is entered competently, and I think it, uh, although he's certainly suffering from uh, whatever physical ailments uh, that are affecting him, it does appear he's able to understand what is taking place and make a competent decision. Uh, the court did schedule this specially at Mr. Kuzma's request out of concern for his condition and having requested set a bond that the case has been resolved and he prefers to do that. So at this time, based on everything that has been presented, I will approve the plea agreement and all of its terms as stated, report to supervision within 24 business hours of release. Yeah, Timmy, report back to supervision within 24 business hours of release. Except, oh, wait, spoiler alert, uh, he died before he even got the chance to do that. After that hearing, they did not bring him to the hospital. They brought him back to the jail to collect his things and get discharged. Just so close to freedom. Except he, unfortunately, uh, when he got there, uh, shit the bed, literally. And so... Instead of taking him to the hospital, they put him in the shower where he collapsed. And only then did they bring him to the hospital, completely unresponsive at this point, uh, where he was confirmed to be in a state of severe diabetic ketoacidosis and was pronounced dead. Classic execution for driving with a suspended license. Aren't you supposed to get a last meal with these things? During his autopsy, they found methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, otherwise known as a MRSA infection, and blamed his death on that. Not the confirmed diabetic ketoacidosis, you know, uh, ostensibly exonerating themselves of their responsibility. Very convenient. So the autopsy report lists insulin-dependent diabetes and a history of intravenous drug abuse as contributory factors in his death. But the official cause of death was the MRSA infection. So according to Florida Department of Health's Vital Records Registration Handbook, say that five times fast, <laughs> uh, contributory factors in an autopsy are other significant conditions contributing to the death but not resulting in the underlying cause. So let's talk about all this for a sec, because there's a lot to unpack here. So Timothy had a drug possession charge from September 23rd, 2018, which he was on probation for, which was why he was denied bail when he got caught uh, driving with a suspended license. So going back and reading about that first arrest, it says he was a passenger in a vehicle that was pulled over because a table was sticking out of the rear and was blocking the license plate. During the traffic stop, the deputy smelled marijuana coming from inside the vehicle. Kuzma and the driver of the vehicle were both asked to exit the vehicle and complied. Kuzma told the deputy there were quote-unquote narcotics in the vehicle, and they all belonged to him. He told the deputy the marijuana was in the back seat in the driver's purse. The deputy searched Kuzma and found a container with dark residue that he told the deputy contained THC wax in one of his pockets. Inside the driver's purse, the deputy found four individually labeled clear bags containing a, quote, green leafy substance. So riding in a car with weed in it ultimately got Timothy Kuzma executed in one of the slowest, most agonizing, undignified and inhumane ways possible. But I digress. So federally, uh, marijuana is considered a narcotic and it has not been decriminalized in Florida. 
So I can't help but wonder if these people just saw the drug possession charge and ran with it, slapping history of intravenous drug use onto his autopsy to, you know, make themselves look better. Now, I am just speculating here, but even if there was a history of intravenous drug use, it was already documented that Timothy Kuzma was in fine health with no acute medical issues when he was booked into the jail. So what the fuck does that have to do with anything? Sorry. Okay, so uh, moving on to the MRSA claim. So MRSA is a bacterial infection, right? Bacterial infections flourish when they have excess blood sugar to feed on for the simple fact that bacteria feeds on sugar. Nom, nom, nom. So this is why diabetics are prone to amputations, right? Like a simple case of athlete's foot in a non-diabetic can quickly escalate into a gangrenous leg-encompassing dumpster fire in someone whose blood sugar is too high. So, had the jail been appropriately controlling Tim's blood sugar levels, the MRSA infection would likely not have even had a leg to stand on. Pun kind of intended. Also, when you're fighting an infection, your body releases the stress hormones cortisol and adrenaline, which, as we discussed earlier, make your blood sugar rise to give your body that, you know, extra oomph to uh, win the war against the illness. So if you don't have diabetes, your pancreas will just produce more insulin to compensate for that. But in someone who relies on synthetic insulin, they would need a way higher dose than usual when they're fighting an infection. So Tim's insulin requirements with a MRSA infection would have been even greater than his usual baseline requirements when, had he been given his baseline insulin requirements to begin with, he probably wouldn't have developed MRSA in the first place. Not to mention, even if Tim didn't have diabetes at all, you would think that if anybody goes into a jail with no MRSA infection, and while they're in the jail, they develop a MRSA infection that kills them, that would probably be on the jail. But Apparently, that's not how this works. I googled, how is MRSA spread? And the top result was an excerpt from the CDC website that says, MRSA is usually spread by direct contact with an infected wound or from contaminated hands, usually those of healthcare providers. <clears throat> so no matter which way we try to spin this, I still do not see how it exonerates them the way they seem to think it does but they say all the accusations are baseless and they did nothing wrong. In 2021, Timothy's father, Roger McCauley, filed a lawsuit against the Collier County Sheriff's Office, which Wink News reported on. Now, a lawsuit says that Armor Health did not give Kuzma the insulin he needed and did not take him to the hospital until it was too late. Armor Health called the accusation, quote, baseless and profoundly deny all allegations. In a statement, Armour told me its investigation showed their treatment did not cause Kuzma's death. I just completely lost it. They took his human rights away. This whole thing has been devastating, and I want justice. And at the time of this recording, there still has been no justice for Timothy Kuzma. That I could find, anyway. That lawsuit was dismissed, in part to sovereign immunity. The legal doctrine that says a sovereign or state cannot commit a legal wrong and so is immune from civil suit or criminal prosecution. I found the court case regarding the lawsuit, which I'll link to in the episode description. 
uh, there's some interesting points in it, though, that I wanted to touch on. So this is Roger McGauley as the representative of Timothy Kuzma's estate versus the Collier County Sheriff's Office and Kevin Rambosk in his official capacity as sheriff of Collier County. So Tim's dad sued the sheriff's office and the sheriff himself, each for deliberate indifference to a serious medical need and for negligence under Florida law for inadequately screening, training, and supervising Armour Healthcare. So the two counts against the sheriff's office were dismissed outright for sovereign immunity. It says the sheriff's office does not have the capacity to be sued under Florida law. So that leaves us with the two counts against the sheriff, Kevin Rambosk, one for deliberate indifference to a serious medical need and two for negligence. The deliberate indifference claim was dismissed for failure to state a claim. The negligence claim against him was dismissed based on sovereign immunity and failure to meet pre-suit requirements. So let's get into the beef of this because there are some interesting case notes. So it says, when chest compressions and epinephrine proved ineffective, Mr. Kuzma was transported to the hospital in an unresponsive state. So epinephrine is adrenaline. Okay, this, <laughs> hey guys. The, uh, the insulin-dependent guy's dying. You think we should give him some insulin? No. Adrenaline. Now, okay, I understand that adrenaline is often used to bring people back from the brink, but, again, adrenaline makes your blood sugar rise, so you need insulin for it to work. What do they talk about in med school? Like, did these people even go to med school? Not to mention, how do we know that epinephrine shot wasn't the final blood sugar spike to do him in? Again, just speculating. Okay, moving on. In 2015, Armour and Sheriff Rambosk executed a contract where Armour agreed to provide medical services to inmates at the Naples Jail Center in exchange for a baseline compensation of $4,883,121. The contract included an annual cap of $750,000 for off-site medical services. So there's the presumed incentive for not sending him to the hospital. It would have cost Armour money. Oh, you'd think that would be the cost of doing business, not, you know, your clients' lives. But what kills me is they, they ended up having to send him to the hospital anyway. He was still in the jail when he was transported there. And then they could have just avoided all that to begin with had they just given him his insulin. What, you don't want to pay $1,600 for insulin? Like, oh, gee, I can't relate to that struggle at all. Wink News did report on an interesting point, though, regarding that. Now, Timothy Kuzma's father told me his daughter-in-law tried to bring his proper insulin to the jail, but they would not take it. So they wouldn't have even had to pay for it. What are they using their $4 million allowance for if it's not to keep their clients alive? Okay, so it looks like the only claim they can bring back against the sheriff is the one for deliberate indifference to a serious medical need for basically having no oversight of Armour Healthcare, who, by the way, according to their online business profile, currently provides medical care for over 40,000 inmates at jails and prisons in Florida, Georgia, Nevada, New York, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Virginia, and Wisconsin. Lucky you guys. But the court contends that as it stands now, the complaint does not prove the negligence was deliberate because there was no express policy that told Armour to not give Kuzma his insulin or to not take him to the hospital. <laughs> 
So it says a deliberate indifference claim has two components, an objectively serious medical need and a subjective deliberate indifference to that need. An objectively serious medical need is one that has been diagnosed by a physician as mandating treatment or one that is so obvious that even a layperson would easily recognize the necessity for a doctor's attention. Subjective deliberate indifference requires 1. Subjective knowledge of a risk of serious harm, 2. Disregard of that risk, and 3. By conduct that is more than mere negligence. To prevail on a Section 1983 claim for inadequate medical care, a pretrial detainee must demonstrate that jail officials acted with deliberate indifference to the detainee's medical needs. Okay, so are they arguing that the average layperson would not recognize that someone who is vomiting, shitting themselves, complaining of chest pains, sweating profusely, coughing up blood, and passing out uh, might need medical attention, so why would the armor medical professionals know that? Is that what that's saying? Am I going crazy? It continues, the detainee must demonstrate not only that his 14th Amendment rights were violated, but also that the local government entity had a custom or policy that constituted deliberate indifference, a mere probability that an inadequately trained employee will inflict a constitutional injury will not suffice. Says so a plaintiff must do more than provide conclusory allegations that the defendant's program of training or supervision was inadequate. Rather, the plaintiff should provide specifics as to what they contend would have been constitutionally adequate training and why the need for that training should have been obvious to the defendant. Okay, so I've got an idea. Uh, how about, bare minimum, confirm that your medical professionals uh, know how to recognize a medical emergency? Uh, maybe know how to read vital signs and require them to send a patient for off-site medical services if those vital signs can't be stabilized. Maybe start there. Probably save a lot of lawsuits and, you know, lives. <laughs> the lawsuit notes that the complaint does not contain, quote, sufficient data to justify the allegations. Um, what? Is this case not sufficient? How many people does this have to happen to before the data is sufficient? I swear I'm going cross-eyed right now. Let's see, what else was golden here? Um, oh yeah. This case relies heavily on Section 766, which imposes an affirmative duty on all healthcare facilities to have written policies of staff selection and supervision. The parties do not cite and the court cannot locate any case law applying Section 766 to a county jail, particularly where medical services in that jail are being provided by a contractor. Okay, well, maybe make one. Maybe make it into law. I think we have a prime case study uh, right here. All right, so the conclusion... At this point, the only negligence theory under which the estate could proceed without running afoul of sovereign immunity would be negligent retention and training for failure to implement an existing policy. Under different circumstances, the court may have been inclined to allow the estates to replead count four and clarify some of the sovereign immunity issues discussed above, but such an opportunity would do the estate no good because any claims capable of clearing the sovereign immunity hurdle would still be dismissed for failing Florida's pre-suit notice and screening requirements for medical malpractice cases. So they're basically saying, well, uh, we're just gonna throw this case in the 
trash and save you the bother of trying to hold us accountable again. There's a nice little note toward the end of the lawsuit that says, The court is concerned that some or all of the estate's negligence theories may be barred by sovereign immunity. Oh, okay. That's nice. Uh, if you're concerned, maybe do something about it. So, the question remains. How do you get justice from the justice system that murdered you? My takeaway from this whole dumpster fire of a case is to uh, make sure that everyone facilitating your care or everyone who's in charge of the people facilitating your care not only know what you need for treatment, but that they also know what will happen if you don't get it so that they can't be like, well, it wasn't deliberate. We're just idiots because apparently incompetence doesn't count uh, because sovereign immunity. Although it does seem like Tim tried all of this, so I guess just hope for the best. So just to recap, Timothy Kuzma was tortured and executed for driving with a suspended license. The jail denied it, even though their own records prove otherwise. And then the state was like, well, uh, unfortunately, you can't sue us. Clearly, we've got a long way to go on figuring out how to get insulin in jail. But this is an ongoing quest. So if you're listening and you've been in this situation and you have some insight, please feel free to reach out to me at insulinpodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, stay tuned to the next episode of How to Get Insulin in Jail for more practical tips on how to not get murdered by the government in captivity. Hooray! Hooray!